Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Um, so the way that we wanted to frame it at the beginning was, what, how do we define what maturity is as Christians? And surprise, surprise, we look at Jesus to know what it looks like to be mature. Um, we see Jesus as fully God and fully man, and that's kind of the, the, the grand paradox of who he is, that if we want to know what God looks like, we look at Jesus. Jesus is the best vision of what God looks like. Nobody's ever done better than Jesus. We've written a lot of books about it. We've made a lot of podcasts about it, but nothing measures up to looking at Jesus and saying, that is what God looks like. Everything else is secondary and tertiary. But if we also want to know what does it mean to be a full, whole, healthy human being, we look at Jesus. And we don't judge what Jesus does and say, well, gosh, that's, Jesus was being kind of mean there, or Jesus could have been a little bit more assertive right there in that moment. We take the way that Jesus is portrayed in the Gospels and, and, and the writers uh, of the early church, and we say, this is what it means to be a full and healthy and whole human being. And so we carefully examine the story of Jesus to get that template, that vision. This is what it looks like for us to be raised up into our full humanness. And really, that's what maturity is. It's about growing into being a full and whole human being. And we need Jesus to give us that trajectory. So what we're going to be doing from now until Easter is examining the story of Jesus um, through the gospel of Luke, looking at some of these key moments in Jesus's life um, and, and, and looking at what does it mean to be a fully human being. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, Luke in general this morning. I want to kind of give vision for where we're headed in this series, and then we're going to be talking about one of the very first stories. Um, So the Gospel of Luke is one of what we call the synoptic Gospels. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and? Very well done. Everybody, when you leave, you go ahead and get a pencil with your name on it. You did your your drill. Um, So we call it a synoptic Gospel, which means uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke that they all look the same. That's what synoptic means. Syn is in synonym, optic is in look. They look the same. So they're kind of these stories, they begin as you would in the beginning, and then they move towards Jesus's ministry, his death, and his resurrection. Then John's a little strange, a little wonderful. John's got kind of another thing he's doing over here. So Luke is one of these synoptic gospels, but where we might say Matthew and Mark are biographies of Jesus, we refer to Luke and its sister book, Acts. You know, they're, they're actually one book in two parts, kind of like the Lord of the Rings is really one book, but in three parts. Um, it's called a salvation history. And what that means is that Luke acts is how is God working through history, first through Jesus's earthly ministry and then through the the church and the advent of the Holy Spirit. And so we read it as one long story. And so who was Luke? A lot of people think, oh, Luke must have been one of the 12 disciples. You know, early on, you're like, who are the 12 disciples? You're like, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, Titus, it's probably in there. Jude is somebody that I've heard of before. I think there were a couple people called Judas, maybe. You know, we kind of, Luke was never, he was not one of the original 12 disciples. So if you didn't know that, now you do. You've learned at least something today. 
Luke comes later in the story of the early church. We know that he was a physician. So a lot of times the way that he writes in Luke Acts is very um, educated. It's a very educated way of speaking, especially when it comes to people who have infirmities. There's a remarkable amount of detail. It's actually uh, the largest of the gospels. And when we take it together, Luke Acts. Luke actually wrote 27% of the New Testament, which means he has put more of an imprint on the New Testament than any other writer, including Paul. Um, He was later on, he was an evangelistic partner of Paul's. He traveled kind of through uh, the known world evangelizing with Paul. So you find this really neat point in the book of Acts where it switches, where uh, Luke is saying they did this and they did that. And he kind of switches over to, "Um, we went here and we did this and we saw that. And so Luke is writing both out of a first perspective and his own personal experience and then a second And it's fascinating, in the Gospel of Luke, he begins and he says, you know, there's been a lot of people that have written about this, but I've done the research, I've done the interviews, and I've put together the most complete version of the story for you. He says, Theophilus, which is the person that he's writing to. And Theophilus just means uh, lover of God, which we can kind of assume for ourselves. And so this is probably written about AD 80, so we're one generation removed from the events of Jesus's life. And Luke is probably taking the Gospel of Mark, which would have been the earliest gospel, something called the Q source, which we assume is a thing that exists. We haven't found it yet, but you know you can kind of reverse engineer and figure this out. And it's probably like the sayings of Jesus. And then Luke was interviewing people that were actually there. And so a lot of times people critique the gospels. Oh my gosh, it was written in, in 80 AD. Like it's not firsthand account. It must be garbage. You know, if I was to stand here and say, you know, in what was it 40 years from today was what, 1980? Oh, good grief. <laughs> Dang it, 1980 was four years ago. Ugh. But if I, was to, if I was to make a wild claim and to say, you know, um, there was actually, there was a, uh, you know, 5,000 people raised from the dead in 1980 in Orlando, Florida, there's at least some of you here, where's Ted, Ted Neesmith, who'd go, no, 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 that didn't happen. I was here. Like, I remember 1980 in Orlando, Florida. So the things that Paul is, or that uh, Luke is getting ready to write are research, and he makes that claim, I've done the work, I've talked to people that were there, and this is the best account so that you might know what actually happened. And so it's a very reliable source for us when we're looking at who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and how God is rescuing and redeeming the world first through the truly human one and then through the church that he gathers on the other side of that. So through this series, there's two primary questions that I want us to consider as we're looking at these different stories from the life of Jesus. Number one, how does Jesus, as the truly human one, demonstrate what it means to be mature? That's what we call him, the truly human one, the son of God, the son of man. When we look at him, what does it mean to be mature in the way that Jesus thinks, acts, and feels? And the second question, in Jesus' interaction with others, whether it's the Pharisees, whether it's the people he's ministering to, or whether it's his disciples, how does he challenge us to become mature? What are the things that he says and the challenges he presents to us to help us to grow up into becoming fully human in the way that God has designed us to be? So those are the two questions we're going to be looking at, and today we're going to be looking at a particularly fascinating story. So I'm going to pray, um, and we'll jump right into this. So Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here, that you are with us, and that you are for us. 
And Lord, it's so easy uh, to be caught up in the excitement of new vision and new graphics and all of the, the hype and the buzz of the beginning of the year. And then as, the, uh, as it becomes familiar, the excitement can fade. And Lord, that's why we need more than just hype. We need more than just branding. We need a deep engagement with you um, to have the courage to stick it out to continue to show up to you time and again, open head and say, Lord, what do you have for me today? Where are you leading me right now? God, we, we are here, each of us, because in some way we wanna meet you. And through that meeting, we wanna be transformed. We wanna look more like your son, Jesus, so that when we go back out into the world, we carry your imprint wherever we go. And in everything that we're called to do from the least significant things to the most, um, it's for the sake of your kingdom. It's for loving the world into your new reality and rescuing and redeeming it. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And so here's kind of the, the point that I wanna hang everything on today. For Jesus, pursuing intimacy with his father determined how he grew up. All of us grew up by nature, but it's about how do we grow up. For Jesus, pursuing intimacy with his father determined all of the other bits of what it meant for him to grow up into a healthy and whole human being. So we're gonna be looking at this story in Luke chapter two, verses 41 to 52. And it's fascinating, this is the only story we have from Jesus's youth. So through Christmas, we looked at a lot of stories about his birth, some of those from the Gospel of Luke. Um, but Mark just jumps right in with Jesus's ministry in Mark chapter one. Uh, Matthew tells some stories about baby Jesus and then jumps to Jesus's uh, baptism and the beginning of his earthly ministry. And Luke gives us this one little insight into the story of Jesus that he's probably around 12 years old when this story takes place. Um, so Luke chapter two, verses 41 to 52. And you can read along or you can close your eyes and kind of just imagine what's going on here. So every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. When they began looking for him among their relatives and friends, when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This is the only story that we have from the youth of Jesus. But already it gives us all of these fascinating insights into what it was like for Jesus to grow up. And I think even that is interesting to pause and reflect on that Jesus, God incarnate, had to grow up. 
A lot of times when we think of, of God and we think of perfection, we think he's already arrived, he's already there, he's got it all sorted out, and somehow Jesus was just like biding his time until he was 30 that he could actually start his ministry, and he's just rolling his eyes at us, just waiting like, oh, they're really gonna get it. When I, when I get released into the ministry, when I get blessed into it, oh man, they're gonna hear from me about this. But this idea that Jesus is growing and he's learning and he's discovering is a fascinating little aspect of understanding what it means to be God incarnate, but also what it means to be the fully, truly human one. So a couple little things that I of note in this story. Number one, Jesus grew up in a religious tradition in a religious family. Did you know Jesus was Jewish? What? Jesus was Jewish? Yeah, Jesus was, not only was he Jewish, Jesus was really Jewish. <laughs> Next week, we're gonna be looking at his mother's genealogy, and in the Gospel of Matthew, he's got his father's genealogy. They're all Jews, most of them are Jewish. And what does this mean? It means Jesus grew up with these traditions. He was immersed in the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. That was what Jesus had as the Bible. And he grew up learning it, reading it, memorizing it as a good Jew would. He also grew up with all of the religious traditions and the customs, the daily prayers, the festivals, the feasts, the, the kind of calendar that was set out to provide Jews with rhythms that helped them to engage with God. Remember last week I talked about this briefly. The word religion comes from the Latin word religare, which means to bind together. Like a ligament. Ligament and religion come from the same word. And so religion is meant to bind to something together, to take what is true in theory and to make it true in practice. And so Jesus grew up as a religious person. And Jesus never came to do away with religion. He came to redeem it, to con continue to give it its true cause. Secondly, Jesus made decisions based on building intimacy with God, even when those decisions put him at odds with his family of origin. And that's the kind of main crux of this story, that Jesus knows that he is meant to be in his father's house. And so they go to Jerusalem, they participate in this religious ceremony, this festival, and then the family all leaves. And we think it's probably like the whole family, all the extended family were going there. You can say, well, how irresponsible it was that they forgot one of their kids. But, you know, it's probably this, this whole group, this whole family unit that were going to Jerusalem and then leaving. So you can imagine why they maybe lost count of heads. It kind of reminds you of like in Home Alone, you know, when there's like, how many, there's like seven of those kids and they all get in the bus and there's like the one neighborhood kid that's like looking in and they just like count him and then the mom wakes up on the plane she's like Kevin it's kind of like that Jesus you know and so you know they rush back to Jerusalem they realize what's going wrong and they find him sitting in the temple Jesus went to church Jesus went to church oh we're not supposed to go to church we're supposed to be the church yes and okay Jesus went to church and he's sitting and he's listening to the scripture and he's engaging and he's asking questions of the teachers of the law and he's giving insight and they're all amazed at this. And so Jesus is making decisions. What brings me closest to my true father in heaven? Even if that puts him at odds with his earthly parents. And we see that kind of through the story of Jesus that he challenges where do we find our center of gravity? Is our center of gravity in our biological family or is it in being part of the family of God? Because it is, if you are a Christian, it is truer that you are part of the family of God than it is that you are part of your biological family. And that's very important. 
because it's not as tangible sometimes, but I think, I mean, in my relationship with my mom, the moment that I realized, I was about 27, it is more true that she is my sister in Christ than it is that she's my biological mother. The more it, it transformed what that relationship looks like because it's based on our pursuit of intimacy with God. And that means that we have to transcend sometimes the biological markers that we have in our lives. And this enabled Jesus to regulate his yes and his no, to make decisions. What are the things that are going to lead me into deeper relationship with God? Not as a rejection of rules and regulations and and family expectations, but to transcend those things when it was necessary because it also says in the story that Jesus went home and was obedient to them. So it's not like Jesus was this rebellious kid that just whatever his parents said, he just did the opposite because it's not about that. It was about this deeper, more important cause. And thirdly and finally, Jesus does not do what we expect him to do, okay? It's, it's amazing. I want to read this little part of the story again. So when his parents saw him, when they went back to the temple, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? And I, I love that. They're the ones that forgot him, right? But they come, they come back and they're like, oh, why would you do this to us? Like, what are you thinking? And how often do we do that? We, we want to put the blame somewhere else. And if we're truly faithful followers of Jesus, we're going to have many moments in our lives where we go, Jesus, why did you do that? That's not how you're supposed to behave. That's not the thing that you're supposed to say. You're supposed to act like this. You see, it's so easy for us to think that our job is to domesticate Jesus in order to make him work for our own personal agendas or for our political agendas, or for our family agendas, or our national agendas, whatever it is. We're constantly frustrated because Jesus refuses to play by our rules. And it's fascinating that Jesus rebukes his own mother because he says, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? And so he challenges her assumptions of who he is supposed to be to her. And if you and I are really careful and cautious about following Jesus, we're gonna recognize that we're never going to get too comfortable with him. Because when we become overly comfortable with Jesus, we've domesticated him to our agenda. And we've attached Christian to the core of our identity. We're a Christian this or a Christian that. Rather than seeing like our, the core of who we are is followers of Christ. And so it means he's always kind of slipping through our fingers. He's always challenging our assumptions about who he is and how he's supposed to work. But when we're faithful to that, it leads us places that maybe we wouldn't necessarily recognize that we were to go. And we increasingly find ourselves laying down our agendas and our narratives and taking up the agenda, the narrative that he's calling us to. And so those are kind of some of the observations directly from this passage I find completely powerful. I think there's two really neat um, conclusions that we can come to with this. The first is this. When we begin the Christian life with belonging to God, over time we learn to believe in and become more like Jesus. And this is what we find. It's like when I'm saying Jesus grew up in a religious tradition, in a religious family, Jesus always belonged to God in quite the literal sense. And so you may know this about Jewish tradition, but on the eighth day, um, baby boys are circumcised, okay? And circumcision was a mark. You're now part of the family. So we can assume Jesus was circumcised. How many of you? No, just kidding. 
Jesus didn't ask to be circumcised. Jesus wasn't quizzed to see, does he know all the facts before he's circumcised? Jesus was circumcised, which means you're already in, you belong, you're part of the family. And so Jesus grew up already there. He didn't have to earn it. He didn't have to behave his way into the family. Jesus already inherently belonged. And so the challenge became for for Jesus's community to say, are we going to raise him up into the promises that were made over him when he was marked out for the family? And then later on, when you're about 13, you take place, or you take part in your bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, which is you saying, I'm now of an age where I'm going to take upon myself my faithfulness to God. What, what has been true my whole life and that my parents and my extended family, my community are holding me accountable to and helping raise me up into, now I'm taking that upon myself. But all of that happens within the context of belonging. And so a good way to understand good religion and I, again, I want to redeem the word religion, I think this is very important, is that good religion follows this pattern of belonging, and as we belong, we learn how to believe, and as we believe, we become something. But unfortunately, a lot of modern religion and a lot of modern church follows a, a model that goes, one, first you have to believe, which means you have to make an intellectual assessment to the facts, and then you have to behave, So we're going to give you a set of rules, and you're going to follow the rules, and you're going to be a good little boy and a good little girl, and if you really believe and if you really behave, then you get to belong. And it's very conditional. Perhaps many of you were raised in kind of that church environment where the gospel was, you broke the rules, Jesus fulfilled all the rules, and he behaved himself, he was a good little boy, and then he died, and somehow that gets rid of your sins, and now your job is to follow the rules all over again. And you're like, wait, I'm just in the same place that I was beforehand, you know? And it's a very small vision of what the gospel is, because the criteria by which we know if we're part of the family of God is first we have to believe all these things, and then we have to behave ourselves. And you see, it very quickly becomes self-righteousness, you know? It becomes, you know, our, our moment of baptism or our membership in the family is we have, to, we have to pass the test. We have to know the right things and then we get to participate or then we get to be part of the thing. Uh, we have to behave. We have to do, all, do everything correctly. And oftentimes it keeps people in these cycles of spiritual abuse where you didn't behave correctly, you have to come, you have to make penance, you have to start all over again, and then you get to the next day, but you've already sinned. So the, and it keeps us in this cycle that it's just about behavior, and it never really touches the deeper part of us. But if we understand from the way that Jesus grew up, there's an invitation for us to recognize what it truly means for good religion is that we belong, we are part of this when we are baptized, whether you were baptized as an infant or later on when you grew up, that that was a marking that you belong, and you don't understand what it means to belong yet, and that's okay, because you've been given a family You've been given the people of God who are there to say, we are going to raise you up into this sense of belonging. And as you belong to this family, you're going to believe because you're going to bear witness to the truth of God made manifest through his people. And as you believe, you're going to become something. It's not just about behavior. It's not just about acting as a good person. It's about actually being formed to be more Christ-like from the inside and out. And so rules and rhythms, these elements of religion, will only get you so far. But then you have to go beyond them in order to be truly formed. And in fact, I think a lot of times the truly mature 
believers among us, the truly mature Jesus followers, actually embrace religion for what it has to offer to help us down the road to continue to pursue intimacy with God, establishing those rhythms in our lives, coming together for worship, learning how to pray, reading scripture, taking part in the festivals. I've been very excited that over the past couple of years, we've increasingly gotten our church on those rhythms of the calendar, celebrating Advent and Christmas and Epiphany, moving into Lent, which we're going to do in a few weeks, entering into Easter and then Pentecost, kind of following the story of God revealed in Jesus throughout the year to help us, to lead us somewhere that we maybe wouldn't go on our own. And I think it's actual spiritual immaturity when we think, oh, now I'm a believer, now I have the Holy Spirit. I don't need rules or regulations. I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. I'm just gonna kind of jazz my way through life and, and call it the Holy Spirit. But truly mature believers recognize we need those rhythms and, those, and those, those, those boundaries on us, not because it's just about us behaving, because it's helping to form us. I think about it like this. It's almost like becoming a naturalized citizen in the kingdom. So I just became a citizen um, over the summer. Whoop. Yeah, no, it was great. I'm excited. But now I get to vote, so <laughs> good luck, guys. Or not vote. I have the freedom to do that, too. We'll see. I haven't made a decision yet. But, you know, it was, it was interesting. We, we moved to this country when I was five, and we moved from Northern Ireland. So we spoke English. We moved to uh, a small town in Michigan of 10,000 white people. So it didn't look that much different than Belfast did, honestly. And it was very interesting because everything was just a little bit different. It wasn't obvious if we had moved to, to Asia or Africa or somewhere, you would go and say, wow, everybody speaks a different language, and they're all different colors, and there's a lot of different traditions. I obviously don't inherently belong here. Um, but moving to Michigan, it's like, this is similar, but not quite right. You have to look a different way when you cross the street. I had these little phrases that kids would make fun of me for, you know, with all these just slightly different traditions. And it took, and it's still, I've been in this country for 30 years, and there are still things that stand out for me, that feel a little bit wonky. How many of you are immigrants? One, two, that's my mom, three. Many of you would know that, or even maybe if you come from a non-Anglo culture, which is, you know, a country's kind of majority white, if you come from a non-Anglo culture and you engage with a primarily Anglo culture, you feel that, like, it's similar, and I know it, but it doesn't feel quite right. Now, I, I, I was fortunate because I spoke English, but become, coming here and becoming a, a, a resident alien, I had to learn the customs and I had to kind of adjust my language and the ways I needed to, to do things. But all of that little adjustment was never contingent upon whether or not I belonged here. I had a little green card that told me, you already belong here. Now your job is to learn how to thrive here. And I think that's a really great understanding for us when we enter into the kingdom. Whether we were born into the faith or we made a decision later on in life. We all become naturalized citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we may not speak the language. And we may not know all the customs and, and the rhythms and the expectations of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. But even when we, when we get it wrong, it doesn't mean that we're no longer part of the kingdom. It doesn't mean we're no longer part of the family of God. It just means there's a continual growth. And so those who are already citizens help us to learn the language. They help us to learn the customs. It's kind of like learning a language. You know, your first language was something you intuited as you grew up. 
For many of us that, that started learning English, we just picked it up naturally from around us. People weren't necessarily telling us until later in life, here's English and here's how you conjugate verbs. And English is crazy because for every single rule, there's like 49% of the rule doesn't apply which is insane, but it's a very playful language. It's a fun language. But if you learned language as a second language, somebody sat you down and said, okay, here's how English works, and this is the rules. And So those are two different ways of looking at that same thing. Because the goal when you learn another language is to be mistaken for a native, right? You want to learn the right syntax. You want to have all the right words. You want to be able to, um, to, to have the right accent so people mistake you for a native. And that's the goal for all of us as we're growing up into maturity as Christians is we want to be mistaken as, as natives of heaven. And so I think having this vision, instead of religion being first you believe and then you behave and then you get to belong, to say first we belong and as we belong, we come to believe, and as we believe, we come to become. I think this gives us a better vision of what tr love truly is. And I've offered you this uh, before, and I, I think it bears repeating, that true love is both total acceptance and total transformation, comfort and challenge going hand in hand. This is what true love is. True love comes to you and says, you are 100% accepted for who you are. You are 100%. You're here, you're welcome, you're part of it, you're seen, you belong. But true love also has this other side to say, you promise you, if you are truly embraced and you are in love, you will change. You will be transformed. We're talking about um, Mr. Rogers yesterday and how that was his message to so many of us when we were little is like, you are special, you are loved just the way you are. And it feels counterintuitive because they say, no, 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 we've got to grow, we've got to behave, we've got to be better, we've got to do more. You know, we kind of get that from our culture. I remember, you know, a year ago, a year and a half ago, we, I did a message, we're talking about this, the, the message of Mr. Rogers versus this uh, psychiatrist said, the reality is we can't tell people that because you've got to go out there and you've got to work hard and you've got to earn it and you've got to do all this stuff and that's how you're going to make yourself, make a life for yourself. And so many of us believe then that our acceptance is contingent upon whether or not we behave, whether or not we say the right things and do the right things and achieve enough in order to make ourselves presentable. And then we just import that into the gospel message. But true love means total acceptance. God completely accepts you as you are. But it also means this element of total transformation. And I think many of us because there's been such a cultural shift away from kind of a legalistic performance-based love, we've moved to the other side of a very permissive love that says you are loved for the way you are and there is no expectation for you to change, which I think is tragic because it's saying there's no expectation for you to grow. But I think when we understand that comfort and challenge, the belonging but also the challenge to become more, those are the ingredients for truly mature growth in our lives. It's a tragedy for us to believe that we can live a life without what we would call judgment. Say, I don't want people to be judgmental of me. I want people just, just to accept me the way that I am and not expect that I'm going to change or that I'm going to grow. I remember in college, a friend of ours was dating this guy and he was really bad news. And we said, well, you know, we think this is, this is a really bad idea, but if, if we love her, we'll just kind of let her make her own decisions. And we're like, yeah, that's great. And they're going, wait. I don't think that's right. 
I don't think that's what love means. I don't think love is permissiveness. Because there's a love that's fiercer than permissiveness that doesn't have to transcend into that place of just being legalistic and behavioral modification. But understanding there's this beautiful paradox of like you are completely accepted and the expectation is you're going to change and you're going to grow. That's what true love does. The profound thing then is that true love compels us to become better people, to grow, to become more than we were when we met it. And this is what we call grace. Grace is the hand of God placed upon you to empower you to become more than you were when you were first met. And so we need to recognize that. And I think it's part of maturity to, to, to let go of this idea that if you love me, you just agree with everything that I say or do. We need to let go of that. That's very immature thinking. And to make ourselves accountable to one another and accountable to God to say, part of this whole thing is I'm going to be challenged to grow, to become more than my original place that I was met. When I was little, you know, I was drawing from a very early age and I just kind of intuitively knew if I just wanted like affirmation and praise, show it to dad. If I wanted to become a better artist, showed it to mom. And that was the way that I grew up. But it was never, I never really felt like, oh my gosh, like she doesn't like this, this is no good. I wanted to become a better artist. And I needed both of those things. I needed affirmation, but I also needed the challenge to continue to grow and to refine my skills. And that's the power of first you belong, and as you belong, you believe and you become. And so, you know, when we begin the Christian life with belonging, over time we learn to believe and become. And secondly, prioritizing intimacy with God defines what it means to grow into a mature person. Just like Jesus, if intimacy with God is the primary pursuit of our lives, then everything else begins to fall into place. It's very hard for us, I believe, it's very hard for us to understand what does it mean to be a whole and healthy human if we don't have a trajectory because we start to make those decisions based on what we feel or what we want or what we desire. But God gives us Jesus to say, this is what it looks like when I finish what I've started. This is where you're headed. And so it's intimacy with God where God is informing us, this is how I've crafted you, this is where you're going, and I want you to make decisions on that. So Jesus allowed God to define him. And Jesus allowed God's definition of who he is to shape and form him in the ways that he thought, in the ways that he felt, in the ways that he acted. And then later on in his ministry, Jesus actually challenges you and I to this same thing. There's this little passage in the Sermon on the Mount, the first sermon that Jesus ever gives. And he says, you know, you're running around and you're worrying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? And he's like, I want to challenge that thing, like the thing behind the thing there. Why are you worrying about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink and what you're going to wear? And he has this little line, he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. What's Jesus saying? He says, when you worry, your priorities are out of whack. When you worry, you're, you, 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 you are afraid that you're not going to get what you want and what you need in this life. And so you start scrambling around trying to grasp at stuff to fill the void, to define you, to protect you, whatever that might be. But I'm telling you, seek first his kingdom. What is the kingdom? The kingdom is the character of God on display. 
the new reality of God manifest among his people. And righteousness, what is righteousness? It just means the right standing with God, to be in right relationship with him. Seek that first. Make your primary goal in life to know God, to be known by him, to listen to God and to speak back to him. Make that your primary pursuit in life, and then all these things that you're worried about, they're gonna be added onto you as well. And so when you're asking these questions, who am I? And what am I to do? Don't worry. Because all those things begin to fall in place when you let God lead you. When you learn to, to tune your ears to hear his voice, to see where he might be leading you, that you don't have to make it up as you go along. That was the primary pursuit of Jesus' life. Intimacy with God first, everything else kind of radiates from there. And we've, that last little line in this passage, I think, is so profound. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And what a beautiful, just little mark of this is how Jesus grew up. Because he prioritized intimacy with God above everything else, he grew in these four areas. He grew in wisdom, in the place of his mind. What is wisdom? We can say it's, it's uh, knowledge in action. It's discernment. Jesus grew wise. Again, mind-blowing that Jesus grew in wisdom. Why didn't he just automatically have it? He grew in wisdom because he pursued God first. Jesus grew in stature. His body you know, the God made flesh to redeem flesh. Jesus grew up, he became healthy, he became strong. God cares about your body. He wants you to grow up, to grow healthy, to grow strong. Jesus grew in his favor with God. He put in the time. He spent time with his father. And when we look at the story in the gospels and Luke and these others, we're going to see that, that Jesus made the time for God. He was always in prayer. He was always connected. He knew when he needed to pull away and he knew when he needed to step in with his relationships with other people because that was the priority of his life. Jesus needed to inhabit the reality that he is God's beloved. And Jesus finally grew in favor with man. Because for Jesus, he didn't find his identity in his relationships like we often do. You know, we're walking around life looking, who am I? And we're bouncing that off of other people. We find our source in our family, in our achievements, in our, you know, in our romantic relationships, in our children. But when we find, try to find our source of our identity in other people, we're always left disappointed because it's transitory, it's limited. And we were designed that way. But when we find our identity in God and intimacy with him, all of our relationships become this natural outpouring of who we really are. We no longer look to other people to define us. We radiate the presence of God to others and we bless them because our relationships aren't a necessity, they become a gift. And Jesus demonstrated that so beautifully in his life. And so I wanna lead us in prayer kind of through those four areas and what we're going to do is, is I will pray uh, uh, kind of around each of these four areas. You're going to respond to that prayer with some scripture that's going to be on the screen. I'm going to leave a moment just for you to dialogue with the Lord about each of those four areas. And then we're going to wrap it up. I'm going to say, Lord, in your mercy, and you're going to respond, hear our prayer. And these prayers are going to be up here on the screen.
And I just wanna challenge you, just take that time to sit with God and allow him to speak over you what, what has been your experience in these four areas as you've grown up or as you continue to grow up and allow him to shed some light on maybe where he wants you to grow next. So let's pray. Almighty God, to you, all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you, no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. So we're gonna begin by praying for wisdom. So I'll pray. There's gonna be a scriptural response for you as a form of prayer, and then I'm gonna leave space for you to just talk with God. So your word tells us if we lack wisdom, we should ask you for it. Teach us a wisdom that comes from heaven to know how to think and act like Jesus. And you respond. So take a moment and pray about wisdom in your life. in your mercy and now about our stature you don't just save our souls you want every part of us to thrive just as Jesus came in the flesh to redeem the flesh teach us how to see our bodies as your temple a precious gift we are called to steward well so just pray about your physicality in your mercy now we our relationship with God we were created for intimate relationship with you in knowing you then we know ourselves help us to inhabit our identities as your beloved that as we belong to you we come to become more like Jesus time just to pray about your intimacy with God.
Lord, in your mercy. Finally, our relationship with other people. When we find our confidence in you, our relationships thrive. We no longer need others to define us so we can love them unconditionally. Teach us how to live faithful to you so we can gain favor with people. or pray about favor with other people. you to stand with me. So Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and with man. Jesus grew up. Jesus grew up. So the challenge for all of us is grow up. And I think, you know, when we come to the table, what's happening is we're, we're, we need sustenance. We want to grow and we need good things to help us to grow. And I think we can understand Holy Communion, the Lord's table, the Eucharist, as this gift, the body and blood of Jesus, that when we take it into ourselves, we're saying, I, I want to grow, but I need good food. I need good sustenance to help me to grow up to be this kind of person, to be wise, to be strong, to have favor with God, to have favor with man. And so as you're coming forward to receive communion, I want you to be considering that, that this is an act of you saying, I'm still growing. And I want to find my sustenance in you. I want to find my source in my connectedness to you above all other things. That when I find my source in you, everything else, my relationships, my achievements, it all becomes a gift, an opportunity to express who you really are. And so we have three stations. You can come down the middle aisle or the two side. We'll start in the front and we'll move our way towards the back. So God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this vision of what it means to grow up into you. And the beautiful invitation you give all of us that as we belong to you, we become and we believe. We have to begin with that place of belonging, Lord. So speak to us as we approach your table. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. Let's come receive communion. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.